you are not your diagnosis. You are not your mental health condition. You are so much more. And Coach P absolutely proves just that. Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help you feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Joanne P. McCallie, better known as Coach P, joins the podcast this week. Coach P is an author and an elite level NCAA basketball coach. Now she's a motivational speaker, a mental health advocate, a consultant, and a life coach. And we have a brilliant conversation about mental health, sports, women's sports, and bipolar disorder. This episode is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company and I use their products daily. So click the link in the show notes, use code everybody at checkout for $10 off your entire order. Now on to episode 141 with Coach P. Welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashpitz. Coach P, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be here with you. Coach P is, is what you go by, right? I can call you that. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. Uh, once a coach, always a coach. So Coach P is great. I, I agree with that. I, I currently coach uh, youth baseball, 14-year-old baseball. And so I'm sure we're going to talk about all of your nuggets of wisdom that you've gained over the years from coaching some of the best in the world. But before we get into all of that, I have a very important question to ask you. It's the most important question I'll ask you in the next hour, let's say. And it is, how are you doing? Like, really, how, how are you doing? Uh, very busy. Very happy to be busy. Um, I think productivity leads to happiness. And so it's really been wonderful. My staff and I are working on so many different projects uh, so I feel great and also have the chance to design my schedule. So I get my swim in every day, get a chance to play some tennis and now and again, some golf, but not too frequently. Awesome. Awesome. Have you always been a productive person? I know from a sports background and a coaching background, that's kind of how we're kind of how we're born as athletes. But was that something that was taught to you? You learned. Um, what's that like? Well, I think that. You know, human nature, I think, is to connect. I think it's to be active. And I think that's the way we're built. And idle time, I think, can be very difficult time. We can ruminate about things. We can see things bigger than they are. Uh, we lose our perspective. And I think that being around people and playing sports in particular, um, but also playing the violin or the piano or any measure of escaping art is wonderful as well. I think all of that is very productive. When I say the word productive, I don't necessarily mean like having to go to work every day or, or what you do for work. It's sort of a productive way of living. Mm. And co cooking is part of that as well. But we do, we do like to be busy. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, because busy can, can mean a lot of different things, right? I think in our culture today, like busy sort of means 
maybe doing tasks that are unimportant and not super <laughs> valuable to you, right? Just to like be busy to be busy potentially. Right. And also like sort of grind yourself into the ground being busy and not understanding like what sort of hobbies can be I do outside of that. Not every hobby has to be a passive side income that gets you six figures, right? All this stuff that you see on social, right? It could just be a thing that you enjoy to do. And mm -hmm. so, I, yeah, I, I like the way you put productivity just in terms of, you know, making yourself feel better, doing something that you are fulfilled by or find joy in, right? It's specifically important to to our mental health and our physical health as well. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Well, you know, and that wonderful feeling when you're so absorbed in something mm. where time just passes, you know, I, I can think about this when I was writing Secret Warrior, um, you know, just being in my office, writing and trying to figure things out. And then I'd look up and four hours, you know, would go by and you'd be mystified by that passage of time. And I think that kind of authenticity about what you're doing and being involved is so beautiful. And we don't always do that. You know, we, we pick up our phones a lot, which I understand, but it tells us the time and the date and, you know, you can get all involved in that. Uh, so I definitely try to, well, I definitely use it, but try to walk away from it so I can have that time where I can't even tell you know, how much time I've spent on a project. Yeah, that, that whole being in the zone flow state idea is just, it's transformational. Mm -hmm. It's super transformational. But <clears throat> I want to um, sort of start uh, at a place that's extremely sort of personal to me and one of the main reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Uh, so a bit of backstory, just quickly before I ask you this question or sort of dive into this topic. Um, my sister... <clears throat> who died by suicide in 2018, um, suffered bipolar disorder. And so mental health, specifically bipolar disorder, and that whole idea of sort of the stigma of it, <clears throat> the myths behind suicide and struggling with a mental health condition, uh, I've, been, I've been learning about and talking about for the last four years. And then coming across your story, um, you being so vocal and open about your struggle with bipolar disorder, and then writing a book about it, and also being intertwined in sport, which I think the, mm -hmm. the mental health and mental performance, all of that intertwined in sport is very, very interesting and intriguing, and something we need to take a deeper look at. So <clears throat> as I say all that, my question really is, what uh, were you feeling leading up to when you got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, what was that like? And, and what made you want to share that story once you, once you sort of figured out what you were going through? Yes. Um, what's your sister's name? Her name is Rachel. Rachel, Rachel. Um, I, yeah, I just, it just moves me beyond measure the difficulty in these things and, and what happens and God bless Rachel and your family. Um, you know, from my perspective, with bipolar disorder, the thing that I guess I can say now that I'm appreciative of is the wide range of issues and feelings I've gone through, mm -hmm. whether it's been the initial diagnosis or there was a time in my life where I wondered about whether I wanted to exactly be on this earth. Um, so there's a you know wide range of things that occur. And I can say that 
I was 30 years old when I was diagnosed. I was at the time of my life with my team and coaching at the University of Maine. And it hit me, I mean, in ways I can't describe to you, it was utter shock, uh, disbelief, denial, all of the above. I, I couldn't fathom the idea that I had a brain health issue. I couldn't fathom the idea that I'd be taking medication because after all, I'm an ex-athlete and I shouldn't be putting substances into my body. I had given birth to my daughter and it was almost just well, a year after that experience. And I want to have more children. There was a question of whether I could relative to medication that I was on. And, you know, that, that episode was difficult. And this was at a time, Aaron, where nobody said mental health, mental health impairment, bipolar disorder. I mean, that's 27 years ago. Mm. I mean, the best anyone could come up with that I could share was that I suffered from exhaustion. Mm. I mean, that was it. You know, it was sort of move on quickly, get past this and know we're not going to take time to understand it. And as I read about in the book, those teams, that team in particular, where I had my first episode, kept me coaching and kept the University of Maine in a spot to accept me and allow me to heal because they were so demanding of me being their coach. And we had won championships and we went on to win a whole, so many more championships. And I like to share the story because so many stories, you know, don't come in that fashion. And there's tragedy that is attached and that is awful. And what I'm trying to share is that there can be success behind this, this disorder. But I must tell you, I had factors that could help me, mm. my children, for one. I mean, when you have children, it does change the equation about what you're thinking and about life or taking your life or not. Um, you know, when you don't have children, I, I worry so much about those young people that are going through that disbelief and that anxiety where they don't have necessarily that human connection. They have family, of course, but they, they don't have that connection of, you know, bringing souls into this world. And I think that it's definitely very complicated. And I've had a wide range of experience and some not as obvious as you would think. Um, was your diagnosis, was that freeing for you or did you feel like it put you in a box? Because I've heard sort of both um, ideas behind it, right? One, you get this diagnosis and then you feel like that's exactly who you are and there's nothing else outside of you inside this thing that you now claim to be. <clears throat> or it's freeing because now you, you understand like, okay, I'm not this quote unquote crazy person. I just have sort of these things that I'm dealing with as a human being, some symptoms, some triggers, um, mm -hmm. some provocative or pervasive thoughts potentially. So I'm, I have those things, but the totality of my humanness is not just that thing. And so I've, I've seen both things for my sister. It was a, it was, it was a little bit, the first one at the beginning, and then it transitioned into okay, now I know, and I can do something about it. Um, mm -hmm. For her, she struggled for, for about 10 years. 
Um, and so anyways, so for you, what, what was the feeling like be, getting that diagnosis more freeing or, or kind of put you sort of in a box? Uh, definitely in a box in a very, very tight box. I, w I was a public figure as a coach and that was taboo and not something that could be shared. It could be used negatively against me in the program recruiting wise. Uh, there was no question. I put it in a box and I put that box in another box and in another box. And I hid that away for pretty much my entire professional life and certainly my entire life coaching. So you're looking at 28 years of being in the box. Because for me, I was not, I could not have that freedom. And most importantly, if I had come out about my experience and shared it with everyone, everything I did would have been under the microscope and my team would not have benefited because so much attention would have been drawn to me. And so by the nature of my work, my love, my passion for coaching, I had to box it up pretty good. I mean, I really boxed it. And at one point I did think about going public in 2005, we went to the national championship game, the final four, while I was at Michigan State. I thought that could be a wonderful time uh, to talk about it because I had this sort of a, a big stage. And then I thought about it and I said, I can't do that. I can't take away anything from my team. Mm. I can't take away from what my team has done. I can't allow the media to go wild with this and make me the focus. You know, so so again, I was it had to go back in the box, and then it seemed like the only time it would come out of the box was after I finished coaching, and I left Duke in July of 2020, and Secret Warrior was published February 16, 2021. We are recording this for those listening uh, on February 16, 2023. So a beautiful two-year anniversary uh, of an incredible book that everyone should go check out called Secret Warrior, which goes in depth about the thing we're talking about currently. <clears throat> and so you finished with Duke after a historic career as a coach, over 600 wins. Amazing. And why did you feel like it was imperative then to start speaking out? Well, the pandemic was sort of starting, um, just the beginnings, really, and a lot slowed up at work in terms of us being able to travel with visits and all the things that we normally do. And so we were taking care of so many things via Zoom that I had time, that a creative time, and I began to write as much as possible, especially in the evenings when, you know, there was idle time. And I just felt, I felt I, as I started writing it, I realized, wow, I'm gonna write this very quickly and I found a publisher who was very excited. And then it dawned on me, this is really going to happen. I'm going to be able to publish this. So with that thought in mind, I was ending my career at Duke anyway. I had a year left on my contract. And it just seemed like serendipity. It seemed the perfect time to walk away from coaching, to say goodbye to something I've loved for years and has been so good to me and my family, but to to kind of go into this new world, uh, being an author, a motivational speaker, sharing my story, and hoping that in any place I speak, or if somebody's listening, that I can help them shift 
from a bad space to a good space rega regarding anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, or any of the spectrum of things that can be out there, anything at all. I, I hope I can help, or maybe I can say something, or maybe my story can motivate. And that's the direction I'm moving as I try, I build a foundation for brain health, which is my ultimate objective. Yeah, I want to I want to touch on that transition um, a bit more here in a second. But I also want to ask you, what did, what have you learned about yourself over the last almost thirty years uh, dealing with this mental health condition that you have? Wow, I've learned. I'm really good at compartmentalizing and coaching. You sort of have to be to be a coach. Mm -hmm. So I, it was not like I forgot that I had bipolar disorder. I took my medicine every morning and every night. I kept a very regular schedule. I knew that I couldn't do things that other people could do. A lot of partying or going out or disrupting sleep. None of that was an option for me. So I kept a very strict schedule. I kept a strict schedule for exercise. And I embraced what I needed to do, but at the same time, I never really thought about it. Mm. I was too busy coaching. It was it was put away in its corner. I I never had I had episode in Maine, um, and then I had a second episode at Maine, and then after leaving Maine, I didn't have any episodes till after I stopped coaching. Mm. So that's seven years through Michigan State. And that's 13 years at Duke. So that's a 20-year hiatus from any issues based on me sort of following my medicine and doing what I need to do. And so the irony is I leave Duke and almost a year after leaving Duke, I had my worst episode ever. May I ask what was that like? It was a lot. <laughs> um, well, there's a lot that goes into it to tell the story. I leave Duke in, in uh, July 2020. My father passes. First of all, sorry, cancer scare. I get a hysterectomy September 18th. This is after leaving Duke. And then my father dies October 18th. So suddenly I'm having kind of a rush of a lot of very difficult things. Interestingly, I make it all the way around to June and I'm on vacation up in Michigan. And I have my worst manic episode that I can ever tell you. I was, I was hospitalized for 12 days. I had only been hospitalized for one night prior. And so it was extraordinary. And I also was losing, feeling that tremendous loss of coaching. Mm -hmm. losing mentors, losing connection, father dying, hysterectomy. And what's really fascinating is my first episode was after having my first, my daughter, and that involves hormones, change of hormones, all of that. And then a hysterectomy, of course, rattles your world and changes your hormone balance tremendously. And so you kind of throw that together with leaving coaching and of course, my father passing, that's an obvious one, but that all went kaboom mm. in June, June of 2021. And then how did you come out of that after the hospitalization? Well, I, 
I came out of it reminding myself that I have bipolar disorder because there was a time with 20 years of no issues or problems. There was a time that I kind of began to wonder. Now, I did have a kidney issue when I was at Duke, and I had to take a little time off for that, but that still wasn't reflective of an episode. Uh, that was about taking lithium, and my kidney was damaged, and I had to you know, do different things for that. So that did occur, but at some point, I was like, wow, especially when I was at Michigan State and my early uh, time at Duke, I had to wonder, do I really have this? Do I really have it? Yeah. And boy, do, do I have it, particularly after that episode. Yeah. Do you think, um, since it was so long between episodes, that basically, I mean, obviously you as a coach is you living living your purpose, right? Your purpose and your passion. I think that has a lot to do with it, right? I think that has a lot to do with being able to manage our mental health most effectively, is finding what things we love to do the most and then trying to do them as often as we can. And do you think that had an effect on on your sort of 20-year no-episode deal? I think so, too. And also, remember, I stayed on my medicine. Right. I didn't self-medicate. I didn't say, boy, I feel pretty good right now. Maybe I don't really have this disorder. Like, I was committed um, after my first episode. And when I had a touch of an episode after that for not taking my meds, I was committed to taking my medicine to... I had, I had a psychiatrist to following up. I had to do blood work because I was on lithium. I didn't skip anything. Even when time passed and it seemed like, wow, you know, I'm really doing well here. I kept with my schedule. I kept with my routine. And that's the piece that I want people to know that are listening is you, you can't go it alone. And to be fair, my teams, every one of them made me better challenged me and made me stay focused to the task at hand and the energy that those teams provided me is priceless you could never never really explain that that was also part of me staying steady and being who i needed to be and don't get me wrong very demanding coach demanded a lot out of student athletes but that's that passionate italian coach that i am and um there was a few incidences, and I've talked to the student athletes about this. If you look over the course of 28 years, I would say there was maybe five or five or so things that I really like felt I had to apologize for, where I'd sometimes wonder, you know, if I was a little bit tough in that moment. That could be a reflection of bipolar disorder. But but when you look at the body of work, when you look at the body of work and communication all those years. There's no question the women that I coached, I benefited from coaching them. And I certainly hope they benefited from, you know, from me coaching them. Yeah, I, I would say I am 100% they absolutely did just, <laughs> you know, based on the so far 23 minutes that we've been having this conversation. Um, but I, I want to talk more about, uh, about coaching because uh, I think it's, extremely important uh it's powerful sports changed my life drastically um i played uh division one baseball at south dakota state and then i took some time off to become a professional wrestler <laughs> um and then now uh i'm back into coaching like 
yeah, almost like eight years after my playing career ended. But I had a bit of um, like resentment towards the sport of baseball because I didn't make it, I guess, as far as I thought I should. Big quotation marks on the word should make it. And so uh, that's why I kind of got into wrestling. It was another dream and passion of mine. And so that was extremely cool. And then you sort of, <clears throat> you know, over COVID with time off and not being able to wrestle and all these sorts of things, you start to think about where your true passion lies. And I fell in love with baseball again, fell in love with the sport, started coaching. And you're around all of these young people who have such energy and vigor and love for this thing that you always loved. And, and just like you're saying, right, they give that energy back to you and you like want to show up for them as best you possibly can. And young people are so impressionable and it's such a, honor and a huge responsibility to shape their lives because that's what you're doing because you don't know what sort of information they're getting from social media it could be good could be bad doesn't you don't know what they're watching there's so much to watch you don't know what it's like at home for them what the environment is like and so you're taking on this responsibility to try to shape this person to maybe give them potential nuggets of wisdom that they might take on in the rest of their life and so <clears throat> I say all that to sort of ask you how you transitioned uh, into being a coach. Was it something that you always knew you wanted to do? Uh, did you just fall into it? Um, what's that like? Uh, definitely a coach by accident. I I was told by my high school coach that coaching might be something I wanted to do. At Northwestern, I was a bit socialized out of that, thinking I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, following these normal trends that we do when we're in college and we, we say what we think, but we don't know what we think really. Mm. So I was a political science major and I was working in downtown Chicago and I was a bit tired of that. And so I just picked up, I got a book on addresses for schools and I started calling around for a graduate assistantship to get my MBA. And the whole thought was I'd get my MBA and then go right back into corporate America. Mm. Well, I never made it back. I, <laughs> went down, I went down to Auburn and um, loved it. Loved coaching with Joe Champy, a very, very successful program, Final Four program, and uh, played for a national title and all these things that I could be exposed to. And I loved it because as a player, I never played for a national title. You know, I never raced through the NCAA tournament. I, I played in the NCAA tournament with my teammates, um, but never made it as far as these other teams. And it was so fun to see how that was done. And my first couple of years, I was a graduate assistant, and I wasn't sure I wanted to coach because it seemed like you gave your life away mm -hmm. coaching. You know, you it, you work by objectives 24-7. You know, you don't you don't just clock in and clock out. And then little did I know that that kind of living was exactly the kind of living that would suit me, mm -hmm. which is working by objectives and being able to interface and be with the team, the coaches and and basically a second family. So I didn't realize how important that would become. And then I was very fortunate that I was a head coach at 26. Wow. So I was very young. Um, I was able to get the job at the University of Maine at a, you know, that young age because I had gone down to Auburn, Alabama and learned from one of the very best in Joe Champy. And I'd been to a national championship game 
And I'd, I saw what it was like at the Elite Eight. And I was so fortunate. Pat Summit was one of my references. The late, great, amazing Pat Summit. The late, great, amazing Sue Gunter out of LSU. Joe Champy. I mean, when you're when you're putting those names down for your references, that's pretty good uh, for having those coaches, you know, come to bat for you. And I learned so much being in the SEC. Um, I love the league, and I'm very grateful for that start. <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's funny that you talk about coaching being a, a 24/7 job because uh, baseball season uh, is just about to start. Youth baseball goes from like March. We do tournaments from March to like the end of July. So that means basically every weekend I have from March till the end of July is full up. It's we have games. And <laughs> my my girlfriend's like, Well, when when do I see you? <laughs> I'm like, Well, you see me when we go to bed and maybe we'll have some maybe we'll have some dinner. Uh so it's pretty it's pretty funny. But but really though, it is a it is a, a full it is a full blown commitment i mean especially even more so i'm talking about youth sports right you're talking about the most elite college basketball you can play at right that's like a like if you're going to commit to anything like that's it right there and so it takes a very special individual to want to do that to have to make a bunch of sacrifices that i'm sure you have to make to do the things that you did and it's really important to note that that people are, if people are trying to make that sort of journey or that trajectory in their life there are going to be a bunch of things that you have to give up. And if that cost is something that you're willing to pay, then it is incredibly worth it, especially if you're a young athlete and you want to play at a high level. Like there are going to be some things that you have to give up. You have to sacrifice these things and you have to seriously ask yourself, you have to be really honest with yourself. Do I really want to give up my nights, my weekends, some friends, some pizza, hanging out, going to see this movie, watching this new show on Netflix? Do you want to give all of those things up? Not all of the time, right? There's room for some harmony in a little bit, but balance is kind of a not really a word that exists in sport, especially right. at elite sport. But if it's a cost you're willing to pay, the, the things you're going to gain from it, the wisdom you're going to gain from it, the, the knowing of yourself, like the strengths that you're going to acquire that you can then put into basically any area of your life when you go to it outside of sport, exactly like you're doing now in your transition into into life coaching and brain health and all of that great stuff. So I think it's it's quite cool. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, it's very cool. And you always get to a point. I mean, I know I did where I thought, my gosh, is this worth it? You know, mm -hmm. giving all this up. Like this is crazy when I was very young. And then it just sort of boom. The next year, my second year as a graduate assistant, I was like, wait a minute, this is really cool. This these connections. The, the way people are developed, you know, the way you're able to impact lives, even if it's little, you know, small, I just, the whole thing just took off for me. And, you know, after that, of course, it's been a long, I guess, 30 plus year road. If you count my being assistant coach and those things. What did you, what did you learn about, about leadership through that time? Oh gosh. Oh, I mean, so much. When you think about back in the day, when I was 26, I had a 22-year-olds on my team. Mm. So I was, you know, I was young in age, and they, there were many expectations that they had. And so I, I kind of had to distance myself a little bit at that time. And also as a young coach, you tend to be 
a bit more dogmatic. And you kind of have to be as you get your philosophy in place. There's just no room for constant banter about what kind of philosophy you're going to have. You have to have one, an internal one, one that you've thought out. And then once you establish your philosophy, you can really grow it and, and see your whole leadership change, you know, from being in the front of the train to the back. And, you know, and it's leadership and our whole theories about leadership have changed so much. The collaborative leadership, leading from behind, all these new buzzwords in leadership were certainly not what people were talking about back in the day. You know, back in the day, it was much more of a, a focused lead from the front, you know, be a strong leader. You weren't as vulnerable back mm -hmm. then. Remember when I had my diagnosis, it wasn't a collaboration. Um, I was counseled by my athletic department to not say much, if anything, mm -hmm. like to move forward. And so over my 28-year career as a head coach, I, I've seen myself change every single year. And you have to. If you're demanding that your student-athletes get better, you have to get better as well. And, and that was something I was pretty clear, pretty clear about from the beginning. But I certainly, my leadership style grew. And actually, when I left Duke, I have to say that I was the best coach I've ever been. I mean, I... You know, we finished third my last year in the league. We didn't win it, but we finished third, and it was a high note. It was a special team. And as I walked away, I felt, you know, you're the best you've ever been right now. And in one breath, uh, somebody said to me, well, that's a shame. Then why are you leaving? And I said, because I'm obviously geared up for something else. Mm. Yeah. When you're talking about your philosophy, that reminded me of something that uh, I learned from Dr. Michael Gervais, who's incredible. Oh. Yes, you yes. know. He talks about understanding your own personal philosophy. And if you were in a dark alley and someone came up and tried to mug you at knife point or gunpoint, and they asked, what is your personal philosophy? You should be able to know it because that's how you live your life based on that. And so as a coach, it's very similar, right? If you know what your coaching philosophy is, then you can teach that and ingrain that in the people you uh, coach every year because your personnel changes every year. You, you recruit people every year. You get new incoming freshmen. Some people leave transfers. It's not as a, the transfer portal isn't as wild now, or it's much more wild now than it used to be. <clears throat> so I could get many different players at all times, but yeah, you want to be able to iterate and um, say your philosophy. So everyone understands where the, where you're going, what the mission is, what they're supposed to do, the game plan, and how they're supposed to act on the court, off the court, all of those sorts of things. And yeah, and and another great thing that you said about coaching that I think is really key that people should understand is that if I want my players to be great and constantly improve and grow, I have to do the same. And you said that, and I think that is incredibly, incredibly powerful because if I am asking people to be elite and be their best, and I am not doing any of those things myself daily, I'm not waking up early. I'm not eating right. I'm not exercising. I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not whatever, meditating, journaling, whatever you do, whatever your, your best is or looks like. If you're not doing those things, then your words aren't lining up with your actions. And then you're really just a phony and no one is going to lead. And no one is going to want to follow you in that message because people can see through that, that facade. And so I think the best coaches 
like yourself do that, right? They have these, their words line up with their actions. They mean what they say. They say what they mean and they do what they say and they practice what they're preaching to the people that they're trying to lead. And that's incredibly important for any person who's trying to lead. And I think everyone is a leader because you can lead yourself first to an amazing, Mm -hmm. beautiful life. And then you can impact people around you, whether that be your family, the community, the larger community, your state, the whole entire world, right? All of that stuff starts with, with you making that active decision to be the best you can be and then have it sort of domino effect from there. I think so. And I, one of the things I've always taught all of my teams, even from the beginning was that everyone can lead. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the captain thing was never a big deal for me. I realized young people want to be captains. You know, they want to be anointed with that leadership role and it's something that they feel they deserve. But what I've always explained to my teams is every one of you can lead. Every one of you have something to offer this team. And we need you to offer it. Now, we might have had captains because they were seniors or juniors or or what have you. But that's a, that ownership of leadership is absolutely critical to any team you're forming. And, and again, I just... I love that in a sense that once teams really understood that concept, you didn't have division between ages as much. Mm. You, had more, you had more of a celebration of strengths that you were pooling together when everyone understands that, yes, they can lead, they have something to offer. Mm. If a young coach... Uh, imagine yourself at 26 taking your first head coaching job uh, is listening to this right now. What would you say to that aspiring coach slash leader? I would caution them to slow down. Rome was not built in a day. Mm -hmm. Usually, usually young coaches like myself work almost too hard, which I, I, I feel I did. My hours were, the longest ever, you know, I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. I had some semblance of balance with exercise, but I thought it 24 seven. I never turned my brain off. Mm -hmm. I wanted so much to lead our team to championships immediately. So I want to know basically what you think sort of the most important, maybe characteristics, traits that you want to see your players uh, possess? I want to see a sense of urgency and immediacy with how they do things relative to their academic work, how they approach it in terms of being prepared, uh, working hard, obviously doing well because they put the time in. When you see them as a student athlete competing, I want to see that immediacy to how they present not just how they dive on a loose ball, but the immediacy they have in listening to their coach, the immediacy they have in terms of turning to their their teammate and saying something positive. Uh, there are just so many times where we're too casual. You know, this casual thing, this walking on and off the court, this sort of, you know, not really expressing ourselves uh, to each other, to our teammates, to our coaches. And so the word I would use would be Immediacy, I, I would, you know, add intelligence to that. Obviously, you love to coach smart players. So you'd add that in there, intensity as well. And I would add inspiration. 
you know, you want to see people inspire others mm. and not simply play within themselves. And I know Michael Jordan always talked about, I think about how he elevated players, you know, how he, how he sort of measured his success on elevating. But I think it's more than elevating. I think it's elevating and inspiring um, because that can be vocally as well as through action. Mm. And as a coach, what, what did you do to sort of instill that urgency uh, and immediacy in your players? Well, sometimes in practice, you had to kind of let's go and move it and right. be demanding, let's go, you know, hustle and, and let a team know that you will be upset about a lack of hustle, a lack of urgency, a lack of pride in the way we present ourselves. When I think about any time I was very aggressive in the film room, on the court, particularly in practice, because games are different. You're sort of already there for games. We're all in the same bunker together. But I'm talking about practice and preparation. I would get very upset with a casual nature, a lack of hustle, a lack of diving on a loose ball, a lack of recognizing a teammate's great pass, you know, a, a lack of making the extra pass to the better shot. Uh, so there's things like that that you really, really can get the attention of a coach mm. and fire them up passionately. And you make that clear to your team that these are the standards and we are going to be immediate. We are going to be intelligent. We are going to inspire and we are going to have intensity like no other. And and so you really have to motivate to achieve those those thoughts, which allow for a process a performance to exist that's at the highest level because there's there's so many things in sport that are uncontrollable and unpredictable right if you can get really concrete and dial in on the things you do have control over which is the exact things that you're talking about basically your attitude your effort your intensity the way you treat your teammates right all of those things are under our control and so if we can fully focus and fully dial in on those things then we give ourselves a better chance to win. Not that we can control the outcome, but we can put our best foot forward to give ourselves the best chance to have the best outcome that we want. And then we move from there. And then it's it's not easy, but when you're looking at it and reviewing the game, you can see, okay, there's here's some points of things that we can get better at because we didn't hustle here. We didn't sprint down the court here. We didn't make the extra pass here. Whatever the case may be, sport related to the thing that you do. But I think that it allows you to then review, learn, and then go and execute uh, better the next time. Absolutely. That's that's what it's all about is, is the process. You know, outcomes will take care of themselves if you, if you can dive in and all be present-minded together. And also if you can evaluate and see yourself play, doing great things and also doing not so good, you know, showing a wonderful intelligence and then perhaps not so much. You know, that you've really got to have that that thick skin to know that the only way to better is to evaluate and to look at we, what we just did and how do we take the next steps towards that. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant process of, of wanting to do that. And that's where you get to a point where you just love that energy created by the team and how we're getting better. And the scoreboard kind of takes care of itself. Right. And then, then you know you've really arrived when you're a no, no scoreboard mentality team and that you're frankly not really interested in that because you know 
it'll take care of itself if you remain in this wonderful process of growth. That's such a freeing uh, space to enter, right? Because sports are about results, right? If you don't win or you don't perform well, one, as a coach, you probably don't keep your job. Two, if you don't perform well, you probably don't see the field, the court, whatever, right? So it is about your result and about how you do. But if you remove yourself from thinking about that completely, you usually do the best that you can because your body and your mind is free, it's creative, it's allowed to play, you can move, you trust yourself. And so it's so it's so interesting to me. I love that part of, of sport and about coaching is like, yes, of course, we're aiming to win because that's important because we're trying to do something like win a championship or trying to keep my job as a coach potentially. But I'm not even like, that's not even my focus. Now, in between games at practices, right, we're thinking about the loss or the game and then trying to, again, review, learn, and then execute again. But I think that's so interesting and it works in, in all aspects of life, right? In business, you know, uh, maybe as a parent, I'm not sure how that works because I'm not a parent yet, but you know, obviously. Uh, so things like that, but it, it's cool, right? When you just don't, you're not focusing on getting to the top of the mountain. You're focused on just making that step forward each and every day. And then, cause you never actually reach the top of the mountain. There's always another step. Uh, mm -hmm. But I guess when you win a national championship, I guess that is sort of, you did reach the top of the mountain. So, well, or a gold medal uh, or anything I like mean, that. Temporarily, there's always another mountain. Yeah. There's yeah. always, you know, there's always something. You never, ever arrive. And when people feel that way, I do think it's a freeing concept. It is. It's extremely freeing. And um, now I want to uh, transition into what you're doing now because. Um, it completely aligns with what I'm doing. Another reason why I wanted to have this fantastic conversation, even though it was interrupted by some Zoom difficulties, but you know, we move on and we, we adjust and we pivot like great athletes do. So you're now uh, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. all sorts of people, ages, um, populations, domains. What's that been like? What was the decision to try to move into that space? How has it been? Well, it, it's a natural evolution for me, and I love just the one-on-one. -on -one. You know, it's been via Zoom, which actually has been beautiful in terms of everyone's ability, you know, to talk with people and to help with different a variety of issues, a variety of backgrounds. And I, I offer coaching, you know, coaching in life, coaching in habits, uh, coaching in present and future. Some individuals have anxiety, depression, or, or different things, but I am not a medical expert. So I don't try to delve into that, but I do share my experience mm. I, you know, about taking medication and doing the right things and exercise and all the little things that can make a difference. So I stay in my lane, you know, as Coach P for life. And um, I mean, people can reach, reach us, my team, at Coach P, the number four life, at gmail.com and it's it's something I enjoy so much. I enjoy speaking, I enjoy traveling as I do. I enjoy my writing. I'm working on a third book, a fictional novel, which will never publish, I bet, but it'll take a long time uh, to get that done. And I'm also working on a tournament in the Cayman Islands. So there's been some diversity that's developed out of Coach P for life. And that's what I what I love. I love to do different things and um but the personal coaching and life development and sharing stories and trying to help and also just being a good listener 
to what people are sort of struggling with and how to help them with their day um, or their goals or dreams or anything. It's just really rewarding, very rewarding. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful um, that just having a, a coach or a mentor uh, or a, you know, a, a sounding board, someone to just who deeply wants to listen like that is so powerful to have someone there who's just trying to learn more about you to understand how uniquely you think and act and move in the world and wants to listen to you because a lot of people sadly, very, very sadly don't, don't have that. And so we have to go out and find that on our own, whether it's through a coach, a team, a community, whatever that may be, all of that is extremely beneficial, but being able to sit down and talk with someone one-on-one hmm, there's, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Uh, mm -hmm. at least in my experience personally, and also professionally doing doing some similar work as well. But tell me more about the, the tournament you're putting together. I, I'm very interested in that. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity for women in sport, women's basketball, because there's been a Cayman Islands tournament for men for about four years. And when I was approached about this project, you know, it made me realize the women are not in the Cayman Islands. And that was definitely a motivational force for me to get involved. And so in a bit, not, not too long, shortly, I guess, we'll be announcing the eight teams. They're absolutely fabulous teams that'll be in the inaugural tournament, which is November, 2023. And we plan on running them 24, 25, and having this presence in the Cayman Islands. And it's, it's a beautiful thing because it's, again, it's, it's, it's getting past boundaries, providing opportunities for women and in, in gender equity. We're, very close to the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is just passed us by there. And there's energy about that. And so I think this tournament is well-timed, overdue, and going to be fabulous. So I'm the tournament director, and I, I'm fortunate I have a lot of people working with me, so I can just concentrate on the teams and get them squared away um, and make sure they just have a great experience and, and something they can do for their team especially given all that we've been through with the pandemic. There was no prettier place in the Cayman Islands to go play basketball. And they're very excited about it and, and support it. Um, so I think it's a very good thing. What have you seen in terms of the evolution of, of women's sports in your time in oh, women's sports? Um, it's hard to put into words. I mean, it's epic. Yeah. Epic. I mean, I was a Title IX baby. I graduated high school in 1983. And I can say that I was sort of on the beginning of scholarships, you know, full scholarships and opportunities to play. The Big Ten was really doing well in terms of women's sports at that point. Uh, Vivian Stringer was at Iowa. You know, that's going back a ways. Um, but I'm very fortunate. I'm a Title IX baby all the way. And my opportunities came to me because of other women who came before. And Pat Summit always talked about driving the bus, you know, the van, and how she had to get her team, you know, this place and that place, and to think about where she came from with all of her national championships and the growth you see in women's sports there. Um, it's extraordinary. And it's, it's thrilling to see the opportunities that women have today. And also how we can push the envelope further. Yeah. Where, where, what, what changes would you still like to see happen? Well, I mean, I just, I think everyone would look for more continued growth, you know, mm -hmm. the equal pay opportunity, 
you know, this the whole soccer situation with mm -hmm. equal pay. Uh, tennis has gone through that and goes through that as well. You know, when you when you look at the market and the way women are supported, the WNBA has just gone, you know, absolutely crazy with that involvement. So again, the market value and and getting salaries up and you know to a place where our our basketball players don't have to go overseas and play as much where you know they are paid more overseas and you know the awful thing that happened with Brittany Griner in terms of you know she was going back to Russia and uh, you know there's just so many things that we can do and that we can do better and grow more and that's what that's what's got to happen yeah yeah i uh appreciating the the growth that you have made right in the last 50 years but knowing that there obviously is always still more work to be done right mm -hmm. i think that's important when it comes to any sort of change that we're trying to make in the world in all areas of change like recognizing yes we have made steps forward which is beautiful thank you to all the people who have led that movement forward but now as a new generation of people take over whatever area of change you're trying to make there's more room and growth to be made always because everything can always be better but appreciating that it has gotten better is a, is a good starting point to know that it's been done before. We can now even improve it even more. So that's great. <clears throat> so even though we did have technical difficulties, I, I did really quite enjoy this conversation. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. I think, I think we bonded over any technical difficulties and it's been a pleasure to be with you and talk with you about all these great things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know you mentioned a few things about where people can find you. One of them being coachpforlife at gmail.com. That'll be linked in the show notes for all things coaching, life coaching, development coaching with you specifically. Mm -hmm. And then you have a great website called coachpforlife.org, which people can find you at as well. And then uh, coachpforlife on all socials as well, right? Yes, we want we want social. I we want to be followed. We want to follow each other. We want to retweet and have fun with social and make it really really positive. Um, I always look for any any inspiration. You know, any inspiration anywhere is what I look for. If I can't find it, well, then I need to move away from my phone. So I think we can all do that. But coach me for life, and you know, the number four is because I'm a Final Four coach, and I always want to. Hold on to that, Coach P, for life. And for life, the idea behind life is how we choose to live, mm -hmm. you know, to our highest capabilities, despite the adversities that we face. And there are so many out there. So that's kind of the origination of that Coach P for life. And as you said, at gmail.com, that's the consulting piece. Um, but I hope people reach out. I, I hope to be available to help any way I can. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my final question Almost as important, second most important question to the the first one I asked you, but if you, Coach P, were going to put up a billboard and millions of people were going to see that billboard every single day, what would you put on that billboard? I would put on the billboard probably choice, not chance. Hmm. And I would put it um, from the concept of we are a product of the little choices we make daily. You know, we are proud of whether it's making our bed or whatever it is. I firmly believe that it's the choices that matter, even though we're all born into many different situations. You know, things are life is not fair. 
you know, life is definitely not fair. I would not put that on the billboard because I don't think that's very inspirational. Life is not fair, but within that context, you know, be, you know, choice, not chance. Put yourself in a position to direct your life by making the right choices. I would put all three of, I think, what your slogans are on the billboard. So one being the one you just said, uh, choice, not chance. Two, stigma over stories. And number three, uh, I think it's faith over fear, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good, Aaron. Yes. Oh, those are all. Those are all great. We'll, we'll take them all. So I would I would load up the Coach P billboard with all three of those fantastic sayings. Maybe two on the front, one on the back, so you can get them in both directions. But yeah, I think I think that's that's brilliant. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Coach P. Choice, not chance. Just like Coach P said, it's about the little choices and habits you make every single day that lead to the biggest, most positive changes. By focusing on the process and just showing up every single day, aiming to do the absolute best that you can. If you enjoyed that episode with Coach P, please shoot her an email at coachpforlife at gmail.com and share this episode with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbitz directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. But most importantly, above all else, please take good care of yourselves and others, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. Lots of love.